So we're continuing our, our Genesis um, series. I think we're four weeks in now. So we're going to start reading from Genesis 2, just 15 to 18, and then we'll dive into Genesis 3, 1 to 13 after that. So you can turn to Genesis 2, and we'll start there in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, Flip over to Genesis 3, please. We'll start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of God. So if you're to ask any given Christian in America today, what's the prime passage to go to to understand sin and temptation? You're probably going to get pointed to this passage. Genesis 3 is the classic kind of paradigmatic text on temptation and sin. And that wouldn't be incorrect. That's not wrong. The themes of temptation and sin, they will be developed fully from the kind of ingredients here in Genesis 3. But you might notice that the words themselves aren't in this passage. It doesn't say temptation. It doesn't say sin. Doesn't mean it's not what it is, but that's not what the focus is quite yet. We won't encounter the word sin, in fact, until Genesis four, when God tells Cain sin is crouching at at the door and its desire is for you. And we won't encounter the word temptation until Matthew four, isn't that crazy? The Old Testament, that word is not there. You get the concept of enticing and the concept of testing, which is strongly linked 
to temptation, a test that tries the genuineness of a thing. And, but the first time we're going to see any of that is the word testing in Genesis 22. So the focus isn't on these fully developed ideas of temptation and sin quite yet in this story. So what is the focus? It's deceit and death. Deceit and death. The woman or the serpent says, you shall not surely die. What's on the table for them is whether or not they will die. It's death. And then the woman says, the serpent deceived me. Those are the categories we're given in Genesis 3 if we're reading this as a true story as God's word. So the point of all this, I suppose, is that temptation starts with deception and sin ends in death. So we're going to start by talking about deception and death and then end by talking about truth and life. So our first uh, header today is uh, temptation starts with deception. And I have to begin this first heading with a caveat that explicitly in this story, Eve is deceived and Adam is not. And I'm not reading into that. Paul says that in um, 2 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, very clearly. Eve was the one that the serpent deceived. And of course, that's the point where all of us men start patting ourselves on the back, right? Like, yeah, we're, we're hard to dupe. But it's not looking good for us either, guys, because end of uh, verse six, the woman's being deceived. And what is the man doing? It says she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam wasn't deceived by the serpent externally. He, he knew what was going on, and he used his wife like a canary in a coal mine. He's sitting there as she takes from the fruit that God said, don't eat that, it'll kill you. And she eats it and he just watches. And nothing happens to her. So then he eats it. He waits to see how the canary fares before diving into the coal mine. So not only is there a passivity of the man that he just doesn't do what the job that he was supposed to do of working and protecting, but there's also... a a cruel sort of self-interested using of his wife. So neither man or woman come out of Genesis 3 looking very good. So Adam's deception didn't come from the serpent like Eve's did, but he was self-deceived about the goodness of God and whether or not it was worth obeying, whether or not it was worth protecting his wife. And he even suggests by, you know, him saying the woman that you gave to be with me, that she, you know, she gave me the fruit and I ate. He's even suggesting that God is to blame for his sin. You gave me this woman, God. It's all started with you. So that's a note on deception. But let's think now about what the deception actually is. If you, if you go and look at this, these 13 verses and ask yourself, where is the lie? clearly. Well, it begins with the question in verse one, but that's just the seed. And that seed comes to a fully grown lie later on in verse five. So the serpent only has three things that he says. He asks a question and makes two statements. The question is, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, he hadn't said that. But the two statements are found in verse five. Uh, first, his statement is, Sorry, uh, it's verse five of a different chapter, so you can ignore that and look in your Bibles. Um, the, 
In verse five, the, the serpent says, you will not surely die. And then he says, for the Lord God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Statement one, you will not die. Statement two, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. So which of those two statements is the lie? Well, verse seven goes on to say that their eyes were opened, right? They ate of it and then their eyes were opened. And then in verse 22, God himself says, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So that second statement of the serpents is true, right? So where's the lie? You will not surely die. This isn't going to kill you. He didn't really mean it. He was afraid of what you might become. That's the lie. Remember, God had said very plainly in chapter 2, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The, there's a certainty with that, surely. It's going to happen. God says you're definitely dying. And the serpent, no, you're not. It'll be fine. Just give it a try. So let's look at verse six at Eve's kind of processing then of this bold contradiction of the serpent to what God had very clearly said. And keep in mind the backdrop, this is what we discussed last week, the backdrop of, Gen in, of Genesis three is Genesis two, and it's the generosity of God lavished on humanity in the garden of pleasure. We're, we, we've just read about the radical generosity of God, and now we come to this. Um, let's read verse six again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now there's, there's a couple uh, aspects of this to notice. Two action words attached to Eve. That's seeing and taking. Eve saw three different things and then she took and she ate. And when you get seeing and taking words next to each other in close proximity in your Bible, it's, it's, a, it's time to pay attention because these are the ingredients, these are the salt, fat, acid, heat that the meals of the rest of the Bible are built with. And seeing and taking is an important theme. The woman let death into the world by seeing that is by making judgments for herself on what is good and right, and then taking for herself. Instead of receiving from God, she reaches out and takes. And we've just never stopped doing that. In Genesis 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were pleasing to the eye, so they took them. Bad idea. Genesis 30 Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, so she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to her husband as a concubine. Bad idea. Genesis 34, Shechem saw Dinah and took her. Bad idea. Genesis 38, Judah saw a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua and he took her. Bad idea. You get the picture. This happens over and over. You see something, you make a judgment and decide that's good for me. I'm going to take it. The Bible is full of it. It comes to a head in Joshua 7. Achan, the sin of Achan becomes infamous in Israel. Achan saw the beautiful treasure that God had said, don't touch it. Devote all of that to destruction. 
He saw it, thought it was pretty, and took it. All of Israel paid for that for a long time. So you get the idea. It's a slippery slope when we start evaluating and making judgments apart from God's word. When we look at a sin or something and decide for ourselves, that's good for me. I want it. I'm going to take it. Ultimately, it comes down to this. It's like saying to God, you just don't want me to have good things. I can see for myself this thing is good and pleasant and lovely. You must not love me. You must not be generous if you wouldn't give me something that I can see is good. So we're deceived about God's word when he says, you're not going to die. We look at the thing and make the evaluation for ourselves. I'm sorry, when God says you are going to die, we evaluate for ourselves and go, nah, it looks good to me. I'm sure there won't be any negative consequences from this. But then doubting God's word, of course, leads us to doubt God's goodness. We've already seen that, but let's notice again the three things that Eve saw in verse six. She saw that the tree was good for food, so it's edible, right? Nutritious, I suppose, pleasing to the eye, and desired to make one wise. Now, so far in the first chapter of Genesis, it's God who does the seeing and the calling of a thing to be good. God is the one who exercises that, ju- exercises that judgment and says good or bad. And so seven times in Genesis 1, God saw and declared something to be good, right? God saw the light and said, this is good. God saw these different aspects of creation and said, it's very good. And now the woman is relying on her own faculties to see and declare something good. And so by declaring that the tree is good for her, she's effectively doubting the goodness of God. You're holding out on me, God. You're being stingy with me. Maybe you don't really have my best interest in mind after all. In Genesis 39... Um, I'm going to read from verse six. This is jumping forward to the Joseph story. Remember, Joseph's brothers sell him into Egypt in slavery, and he um, is entrusted to this guy named Potiphar and given a position as a servant in his house. And verse six says this, so Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So Potiphar's wife saw that Joseph was a delight to the eyes. And she tried to reach out and take him. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it's meant to. And in verse 8, we then see Joseph's response. He refuses to lie with her because his master had been so incredibly generous. That's what kept him from sin. He looked at the generosity of his master and he ends his response by saying, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? God's been so good to me. How could I betray him like that? Why would I take for myself when he's giving me and I can just receive? Isn't it better that way? That's what the generosity of God is meant to do in us. It's what it was meant to do with Eve. She should have said to the serpent, look at this garden. 
I don't need that fruit. Look at all that he has given me. Look how generous he's been with me. How could I accuse him of being stingy? How could I betray God like that? That's how deception and sin start with us. Temptation starts with the deception about what God really said and is God really good? And then it leads to sin. Like James says, it grows up into sin. So let's look at number two then, sin ends in death. Back in chapter two, God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's precisely what the serpent pressed into and questioned. And if you've read carefully and thought deeply about this, you've probably come to the same conclusion that Adam and Eve did not keel over after they took the fruit. So was God right or was the serpent right? (laughs) It, It should, God, yeah, thanks, man. It should be difficult. It should leave us feeling a little like unsettled, like our footing is a little unstable for a minute. It is hard. Now, I don't know if Adam and Eve had a mental category for what death was. I don't know if animals killed each other in the garden or not. The Bible's not super clear on that. However, they did have a category for life because in Genesis 2, 7, God formed Adam, but then he breathed life into Adam's nostrils. And the language is so relational. It's so intimate. It's so face-to-face. Adam would have opened his eyes and seen the face of God there. Life is about face-to-faceness for Adam and Eve. And when the woman was built from the side of Adam, God is the first thing she sees. We know that because then God brought the woman to the man. So there's this personal relational intimacy with us and God that is life and an intimacy and relationship with each other as well. In other words, life is deeply connected to relationship. That's why loneliness feels like death. Which means that death then must be a severing of those relationships. A separating of one person from another. A deadly separation, really. So immediately after the man and woman ate the fruit, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what happened. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so remember in chapter 2, the the man and woman are naked and not ashamed. Incredible. Now they're naked. They know they're naked in a new sort of a way, where nakedness now feels like vulnerability, not intimacy. And they get deeply ashamed. And so they sew fig leaves together. Now, What are they doing here? I was always under the impression they're hiding from God. They do hide from God. But it says later they use the trees of the forest to hide from God. They use the fig leaves to hide from each other. The first marriage is the first death blow of sin. When death enters the world, it takes the man and wife and pulls them apart and puts this divider between them where now they even have to hide from each other. They don't think they can trust each other. Sin always affects more than just you and God. It's one of the great deceptions that we believe all the time. This won't hurt anyone but me. And it's a lie. 
It hurts everyone around you because it pulls you away from them and them from you. It will discolor, warp, and break our relationships with each other. And it will feel like death if we let it continue. So then death continues to wreak havoc after breaking apart the man and woman relationally. It continues to wreak havoc on the man and woman. Look at verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, from the face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The word presence in Hebrew is the word face because being present is being face to face with somebody. Ultimately, it's the goal. So now they're hiding from each other with fig leaves and then they're hiding together from God in the trees. And before they disobeyed, they enjoyed then the full presence, the face-to-faceness of reality with God. There was no fear, there was no distrust, there was no shame. Instead of vulnerability, it was intimacy and joy. And now it's a chasm that has come between man and humanity. So when we decided to ally with the serpent, instead of trust and lean on God, we died spiritually. Which, come to find out, isn't like the sign that points to the reality of the thing. It's the real thing itself. It's not like our physical death is real death and our spiritual death is just kind of like a metaphor for real death, it's quite the other way around. The fact that we expire as mortal people actually just points to the reality of spiritual death and separation from God. That's where the emphasis in scripture is. So God wasn't lying when he said, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They did die right then. Deadly separation from each other and deadly separation from God. Sin is like a tree that only bears death fruit. This is Paul's metaphor in Romans 6. The tree, it's sin tree, bears death fruit, and we can't nurture and cultivate this tree expecting a different fruit to ripen. Just doesn't make sense. If we're going to play with the sin tree, we're going to get the death fruit. That's how that works. And in verse 13, we see that the woman knew that she had experienced death already because she immediately recognized the serpent deceived me. So remember, we pinpointed what the deception is. Where's the lie? It's that you will not surely die. And then they eat of the fruit and Eve goes, oh, it was a lie. Well, how did she know it was a lie? Because she died. She experienced deadly separation from her husband and her God. That's when she knew that God was telling the truth. Death came into the world in that moment. Now, I don't think I need to convince you that our sin separates us from each other and separates us from God. I think we all get that. Um, But we do need to understand this connection between the physical death and the spiritual death. Because they did die in that day, separation relationally, 
but they were also removed. They were exiled, not only from each other, not only exiled from the face of God and intimacy with God, but from the very presence of life and blessing. They were kicked out of the garden. It's the end of the chapter we'll get to in a week or two. And we're still in that place of exile. And what we need is a way back to life, a way back to the place where we can get life and blessing again, to the tree of life, the garden of God. So we've got exile, deception, and death. What we'll need is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not just being cute. John had that in mind when he put Jesus's words there in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The deadly separation that sin brings into our reality is only remedied by Jesus. That's it. The lie will only be seen as deception when we see the truth in the person of Jesus Christ. And it turns out he himself is the life that we've been craving. Now I wanna run a kind of a what if scenario with you. What if Eve ate from the tree and Adam didn't? Do you ever think about that? What if Eve ate and Adam didn't eat? Well, let's think about that. Um, from the command back in Genesis 2, God says to Adam before the woman is created, he says, you, singular, there's a singular and a plural you, it, like in Southern English, right, you and y'all. He says, you, singular, shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it, Adam. The command is given primarily to the man. And then in the next chapter, Eve eats first. What happens when Eve eats from the tree? Nothing. Then the man eats from the tree, and then it says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The consequence of the disobedience didn't occur until Adam had eaten from the tree. Now look down at Genesis uh, 3, 22. If you have your Bibles, look at the, yeah, Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. You ever noticed that before? <laughs> was it wrong for Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, of course it was. It was still disobedience right? We're not quibbling there. Was Eve exiled from the garden along with Adam? Yes, of course she was. But here's the point. Eve could have eaten from the tree. And instead of Adam standing passively off to the side, treating his bride like a canary in a coal mine, he could have come in, crushed the serpent, thrown its carcass out of the garden, and gone to God for forgiveness on behalf of his wife. That's what should have happened. 
we should be telling tales of Adam the serpent slayer. But he didn't. He failed to love his bride and all humanity died. So we need a second Adam. We need a man who will love and protect his bride by crushing the evil that overwhelmed her already. Because we're the bride of Christ, the church. Collectively, that's how the Bible talks about us. We are like Eve. And like our mother, we have already taken and eaten that forbidden fruit. We're not talking about this as some like scenario to bulletproof your life in the future. Here's three steps to avoiding future temptation so you don't fall like Eve. We already fall. We were already born into sin because of Adam. And then we just kept on eating from that tree again and again and again, proving that we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. So Jesus Christ, our true bridegroom, our second Adam, instead of standing passively by, he goes to the cross and crushes the head of the serpent. God tasked the first priest, Adam, to work and keep, to work and protect the garden. He failed miserably, immediately. But our second Adam, our great high priest, Jesus, not only cultivates the garden of God, but he protects it. He works and keeps by dealing the final deadly blow to that serpent who threatens his bride. That's his priestly work. Adam should have crushed the serpent, banished it from the garden, and gone for forgiveness on behalf of his wife. And that's precisely what Jesus did on the cross. So if we walk through life, looking at the fruit of sin, which is everywhere, and we think, well, uh, you know, it doesn't seem that bad. It looks good to me. I don't really think there's going to be negative consequences from this. What we're saying to God is, you're holding out on me, and I know better. When we choose sin over obedience, we're telling him, I can see for myself that this is good. I'm just going to take it. I will not surely die. But here's the thing, as I'm wrapping this up. We know with certainty that our sin leads to death. Not because of our experience of what happens after we sin, but because of what happened to Jesus. When he put his sin on his shoulders, as it were. I'm sorry, when he put your sin on his shoulders, my sin on his shoulders, and bore it into the presence of God, he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's deadly separation from God. And that's what our sin did to him. So we don't have to wonder if we will surely die. He surely died because of our sin because we were deceived and we took and ate. So now our second Adam has conquered for us. He's loved us with an everlasting love. And now he's offering us a deep, lasting life. Real life. He's asking us, do you want to stop hiding? you don't have to hide anymore. Your vulnerabilities can be turned into joy again instead of being scary. And if you want that, 
then first you need to see your own death in the death of Jesus on your behalf. If you're a Christian and you've been baptized, part of what that symbolizes, what the sign of baptism points to, is that you've been buried in the grave with Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We have to see our death and the death of Christ. In Romans 6.23, when Paul says the wages of sin are death, he has an arm extended and a finger pointed at the cross. He says, sin leads to death. See? The cross of Christ is the proof that God's word is true when he says, you shall surely die. The cross of Christ is the proof that all sin is deadly. And when he raised from the dead, it was proof that there is a way back to God. Real eternal life starts now in Christ. And we don't have to take it. We can just receive it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for doing what we could not do, for doing what we would not do, but should have done. Thank you for defeating the enemy, for defeating death from the inside out, for making a way, for being the way back to the presence of God, to being at peace with the Father, having joy. We thank you. We remember now what it cost you as we prepare our hearts for Holy Communion. And we love and praise you all the more for it. Amen.